This is a recording of Translating the New Testament for Latter-day Saints by Stephen O. Smoot, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 31, 2019, read by Stephen O. Smoot. Abstract. A new translation of the New Testament by Thomas A. Wayment, a professor of classics at Brigham Young University, offers Latter-day Saints a fresh look at this volume of Scripture. Accompanying the translation are study notes that touch on historical, textual, and other items of importance in any critical reading of the New Testament. Wayman's new edition should prove a helpful aid to Latter-day Saint readers wishing to get more out of their study of the New Testament. In a sermon delivered in Salt Lake City, Brigham Young issued this charge. If there is a scholar on earth who professes to be a Christian, and he can translate the Bible any better than King James translators did— he is under obligation to do so, or the curse is upon him. If I understood Greek and Hebrew, as some may profess to do, and I knew the Bible was not correctly translated, I should feel myself bound by the law of justice to the inhabitants of the earth to translate that which is incorrect and give it just as it was spoken anciently. Putting a fine point on it, President Young asked rhetorically, Is that proper? And answered in the affirmative, Yes, I would be under obligation to do it. English-speaking members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have long cherished the King James Bible, which is both the official English Bible of the Church and has informed Latter-day Saint theological vocabulary since the founding of the Church in 1830. Allusions to and citations of KJV passages and language are woven deeply throughout Latter-day Saint scripture and theological vernacular, and Joseph Smith famously undertook a new translation or revision of the KJV as part of his larger restoration project. Given that Latter-day Saint leaders have historically resisted the adoption of modern English translations of the Bible, it would not be unfounded to assume that the KJV enjoys a supremacy over Bibles among English-speaking Latter-day Saints that will not be contested anytime soon. Nevertheless, it simply cannot be denied that after 400 years of intense biblical scholarship since the publication of the KJV in 1611, to say nothing of 400 years of development of the English language, the time is long overdue for English-speaking Latter-day Saints to seriously re-examine their exclusive loyalty to the KJV. While the KJV unquestionably remains unsurpassed in literary excellence among English Bibles, the veritable crown jewel in the diadem of English prose and poetry, the fact is that sole reliance on the KJV is in many regards a serious impediment to deeper understanding of the biblical text. President Young's insistence that faithful scholars are obliged by the law of justice to the inhabitants of the earth to translate that which is incorrect and give it just as it was spoken anciently must be seriously reckoned with by members of the church as there is abundant justification for just such an undertaking. Thankfully, Latter-day Saints have now been supplied with a landmark publication that meets this demand. Thomas A. Wayment, currently professor of classics and previously a professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, who has published extensively on New Testament and early Christianity in both popular and academic venues, has benefited members of the church with a fresh, precise, engaging, and approachable translation of the New Testament, henceforth the WT for Wayment Translation, geared squarely at a mainstream Latter-day Saint audience. At the outset, Wayment is quick to clarify what his translation is not. This translation is not an attempt to replace the KJV for Latter-day Saint readers but it is an invitation to engage again the meaning of the text for a new and more diverse English readership of the New Testament. If Wayman's translation, then, is not meant to replace the KJV, what precisely does it intend to accomplish? 
This translation intentionally engages the possibility that the New Testament can be rendered into modern language in a way that will help readers appreciate more fully the teachings of Jesus, his disciples, and his followers. This is a worthwhile undertaking since the inspired words of Jesus and his first century apostles are liable to be obscured if modern readers have access to them only through archaic language no longer suitable to their modern needs. When the language of translation becomes too foreign, Wayman observes, too distant from the present age, it is time to consider the possibility of another translation. The fact that a portion of the revisions made by Joseph Smith in his new translation of the Bible were updates to the archaic language of the KJV puts Weymouth in good company on this point. Besides providing a fresh translation, Weymouth also endeavors to make his edition a study tool, an aid to inviting readers into the text so that new meaning can be discovered and new inspiration can be found. To that end, the WT overhauls the formatting of the text in some ways his Latter-day Saint readers are perhaps not too familiar with. This includes the use of quotation marks to designate what was said and by whom, a paragraph structure as opposed to versification, the minimalization of the intrusion of verse divisions, and placing verse designations in a smaller superscript font, the inclusion of headings to demarcate literary pericopes in narrative and thematic, doctrinal, or structural sections and epistles, and the rendering of intertextual quotations into italics with notes to direct the reader to the source of those quotations. It is apparent that Wayment and his editors at the Religious Studies Center have put great care into making this an aesthetically pleasing and readable edition. The study notes in the WT favor intertextuality, especially with the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. Wayment informs his readers that he included those references to help readers see how the New Testament texts are engaged, developed, and interpreted in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. References to the JST are also included in the notes, but Wayment is selective in how many JST variant readings he includes, because many of the changes that Joseph Smith made are inextricably linked to the King James Version. Important variant readings found in different Greek manuscripts are likewise provided in the notes, as is commentary on disputed passages of questionable origin, which offers an opinion regarding the authenticity of said passages. Latter-day Saints, naturally, should not be scandalized by potential corruptions in the biblical text. And in any case, it is important to note disputed or variant readings to show how the text of the New Testament developed over time. In instances of clearly spurious passages, for example, 1 John 5, 7-8, the interpolation known commonly today as the Johannine Coma, the offending verses have been removed from the text and placed in the notes. In terms of what kind of translation Wayman has produced, based on his own prefatory explanation and from a sampling of passages, it appears the WT is more or less a moderate to formal equivalence of the underlying Greek text, somewhere between the New Revised Standard Version and the New International Version. That is to say, Wayman has not attempted to translate Greek words exactly in the same way in each instance, nor in the same grammatical order in which the words appear in their Greek sentences, for such would come at the cost of readability. He has, essentially, chosen to err on the side of context in determining how to render the Greek. Take, for instance, the question of how to render the word adelphos. A straightforward translation of the word would be brother, and, as Wayman notes, there are some passages where the author appears to have intended men exclusively. However, many other uses of adelphos in the New Testament do not require a gender-exclusive rendering of the word. The original context of the word was not intentionally exclusionary, but rather an artifact of first-century common usage in parlance, notes Weymouth. 
Because the New Testament often uses the word generically to refer to those who believe alike, regardless of gender, Wayman opts to translate Adelphos inclusively as brother and sister in many instances. In my judgment, this is a perfectly reasonable, even laudable way to stay true to the sense of the Greek based on context while adapting the English to be meaningful for a broader, in this case, gender non-exclusionary audience. Accordingly, Wayman's approach is welcome because the New Testament is written in a variety of different Greek styles, and so imposing a rigid and uniform rendition of English would obscure the range of refined to simple Greek encountered in the various New Testament books. A translation that can represent the simple power of the language of Jesus and his followers is truly a gift, Wayman correctly points out. And as we are further and further removed from the 17th century, we have begun to lose sight of the realization that Jesus spoke like everyday people. Jesus did not speak using archaic English terms and phrases. His speech was quite ordinary, his meaning was quite profound, and his intent was often clear. As language evolves, so too translations need to evolve. So while Wayman's translation is not likely to be heard being sung by the King's Singers in Cambridge or the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square in Salt Lake City during Christmas time, it nevertheless does effectively render the Greek in a readable yet faithful manner. It is clear the WT is aimed at a general non-academic audience. The question might thus naturally arise as to how Wayman navigates historical or textual issues that become apparent from a critical reading of the New Testament. Wayman handles judiciously issues pertaining to authorship, historicity, and textual corruptions in the New Testament. True to its self-styling as a study Bible for Latter-day Saints, the WT does not shy away from questions or concerns about the authorship and historicity of the New Testament books, but neither does it lose focus on its devotional and pastoral purposes nor does it appear to take any overly radical positions at odds with the restored gospel that are propounded by more liberal or secular scholars of the New Testament. On the contrary, I found the WT at times fairly conservative in how it approaches a number of issues. Take these three examples. Concerning the depiction in Luke 22, 43-44 of Jesus' experience hematodriasis, Wayman writes, These two verses are generally disputed, and a number of important ancient manuscripts omit them. Other early and important manuscripts include these verses. Given the current evidence, it is unlikely that the question of their omission or inclusion can be resolved. However, the evidence is strong enough to suggest that they may be original to Luke's gospel, but were perhaps omitted over doctrinal concerns. Mosiah 3.7 seems to have these verses in mind. Concerning the pericope adulterae, Wayman writes, the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament omit this verse and John 8, 1 through 11. Some manuscripts place the story of the woman caught in adultery at John 7, 36, after John 21, 25, or after Luke 21, 38. The story appears to have strong external support that it originated with Jesus, but it may not have originally been placed here in the Gospel of John or even to have been written by the author of the fourth Gospel. It is placed in double brackets in the WT to indicate that it is it has questionable textual support, but it is included in the text because it has a reasonable likelihood of describing a historical event from the life of Jesus. Concerning the disputed authorship of Hebrews, Wayman writes, In one of the earliest Greek manuscripts, Chester Beatty Papyrus 46, this epistle is included immediately following Romans, indicating that whoever made the copy of the New Testament felt that Paul was the author of the work because the scribe placed the book alongside other Pauline epistles. However, there are also significant concerns regarding Paul's authorship of the letter, and the style of Hebrews and the quality of the Greek writing is so markedly different from Paul's other letters as to suggest that Paul certainly did not write the letter in the same way and under the same circumstances that he wrote his other letters. 
Tradition suggests that Paul wrote Hebrews, which is a reasonable assumption. The evidence is fairly conclusive that an early Christian author who was connected to Timothy wrote this epistle with the intent of addressing the topic of Christ for a Jewish Christian audience. Wayman is also straightforward in his discussions of the synoptic problem, the authorship of the Gospels, and the authorship of the oft-designated pseudo-Paulian and Catholic epistles. The recurring point Wayman returns to in most of his commentary on this final point is that the question of Paul's or Peter's or Jude's authorship cannot be settled simply. This is a safe route to take as Latter-day Saints continue to come to terms with how they might accommodate potentially non-apostolic or at the very least non-conventionally apostolic authorship of these disputed portions of the New Testament. Further work needs to explore just how the Latter-day Saint views of the Bible might affect our overall hermeneutic in light of potential New Testament pseudepigrapha. Wayman wisely does not slam the door shut on the traditional authorship of these books, while also raising the very real issues Latter-day Saints need to seriously confront. Hopefully, Wayman's notes and commentary will invite further reflection on and investigation into these matters from a Latter-day Saint perspective. Wayman is careful not to allow sometimes decades of assumed Latter-day Saint readings of the New Testament to overpower a close exegetical reading of the text. Two passages in 1 Corinthians will serve to illustrate my point. 1 Corinthians 8 records Paul's teachings on whether or not it is proper for Christians to eat food sacrificed to idols. Concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol in the world is nothing and that there is no God but one, Paul declared. The next two verses contain what would otherwise be a straightforward declaration were it not for a somewhat cryptic parenthetical remark. Even if there be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, just as there are many gods and lords, however, there is one God for us, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. The parenthetical comment in verse 5, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, attracted the attention of the prophet Joseph Smith in a discourse delivered on 16 June 1844. In this sermon, the prophet quoted verses 5 and 6 as a proof text for his own doctrine of a plurality of gods. Paul says there are many gods and many lords. I want to set it in a plain, simple manner. But to us there is but one God pertaining to us, in all and through all. But if Joseph Smith says there are gods many and lords many, they cry, away with him, crucify him. Mankind verily say that in the scripture it is with him. Search the scriptures, and they testify of things that apostates who'd blaspheme. Paul, if Joseph Smith is a blasphemer, you are. I say there are gods many and lords many, but to us only one, and we are to be in subject to that one, and no man can limit the bounds or the eternal existence of eternal time. It would be tempting merely to defer to the prophet's exposition on this verse as authoritative without much further consideration. Wayman, however, provides additional commentary which, while not necessarily negating the prophet's application of these verses to his own theology, nevertheless provides an important context. The wording of Paul's statement may suggest that he believed in the existence of other gods and lords, but such an interpretation of his own words misses the criticism Paul is offering of those who believe in other gods. In other words, the prophets appeal to this verse as giving justification to a sort of theological henotheism or monolatry may be supportable, but it is not the immediate point in Paul's original usage, which was essentially to say that even if there were indeed multiple gods and lords, Christians are accountable to but one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, and so concerns over consuming food offered to idols is a non-issue. This kind of close reading offered by Wayment should, in turn, encourage modern Latter-day Saint readers to parse more carefully what is original to the New Testament authors, what is inspired expansion on early biblical material by modern prophets, and what is application or likening to meet pastoral concerns. 
The second passage worth highlighting is well known to Latter-day Saints. Otherwise, why are they baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized on their behalf? Beginning with the restoration of the practice of baptism for the dead in 1840, Latter-day Saints have cited this passage to great theological effect. It continues to be invoked as crucial scriptural precedent for their practice of vicarious baptism and thereby a powerful aspect of Latter-day Saint theodicy. The Prophet Joseph Smith himself devoted much attention to this verse, which laid the foundation to a crucial component to Latter-day Saint soteriology and eschatology. But while 1 Corinthians 15.29 has proved fertile soil for Latter-day Saint theological exposition, Wayman notes that on its own, the verse offers very little actual information on the practice or purpose of vicarious baptism in the first century church. Paul does not specify who they are in this verse, he writes. The reference appears to be obvious to the Corinthian saints, and therefore some members of the church in Corinth who likely practiced baptism on behalf of the dead understood the reference. This is the only mention of the practice in the New Testament, and no guidelines or details associated with the practice have survived. As such, whatever additional significance Latter-day Saints attach to this verse must come from further light and knowledge imparted by modern prophets. That the verse in fact speaks of vicarious baptism for deceased persons cannot be easily doubted, despite the sometimes ingenious ways writers have attempted to get around what is the most plainly obvious reading of the text. Modern Latter-day Saints should nevertheless be aware that this verse, while serving as a significant biblical justification for their practice of vicarious baptism, leaves plenty to be filled in through the insight and guidance of modern prophets. Overall, I found much in Wayman's new study edition of the New Testament to commend to its intended Latter-day Saint audience. It is precisely the sort of thing that qualified Latter-day Saint biblical scholars can and should be doing for each of the books of the Bible. The world already benefits from the Harper Collins Study Bible, the Jewish Study Bible, the Catholic Study Bible, and the New Oxford Annotated Bible, to name just a few examples. It's time for an authoritative Latter-day Saint Study Bible, perhaps a Restoration Study Bible, for both the Old and New Testaments. Wayman has provided a promising glimpse at what a reliable, comprehensive study Bible for Latter-day Saints could look like. If Latter-day Saints scholars collaborated to synthesize the best of biblical scholarship with doctrinal and historical insights from the Restoration Scripture and the teachings of modern prophets and apostles, I am confident that the publication of just such a study Bible could be accomplished to great benefit for the saints. Until that time, every Latter-day Saint wishing to seriously engage the New Testament should pick up a copy of Wayman's new translation. This has been a recording of Translating the New Testament for Latter-day Saints by Stephen O. Smoot, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 31, 2019, read by Stephen O. Smoot. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.